Through our many engagements daily, we support airmen in emergency financial distress, we help their families achieve their educational goals, and we improve quality of life through our proactive community programs. This is Airmen Helping Airmen, a podcast brought to you by the Air Force Aid Society and our generous donors who support airmen and their families. Each episode, we will strive to bring a smile, spark an idea, or perhaps even having you shed a tear. We will share airmen and their family stories in their voice and show you how the Airmen Helping Airmen philosophy still drives our mission today. But why is that important? Because none of it's possible without you. On this episode of Airmen Helping Airmen, we hit on one of our military's key mottos, one team, one fight. Each of our military branches has a dedicated service relief society. These societies like Air Force Aid Society helps that branch's service members and their families. So how do the relief societies embody that one team, one fight motto? Specifically, do they work together? Do they help each other's respective service members? Do they even get along? Of course they do. It's all about helping. I had the opportunity to sit in a meeting with the top leadership of the Air Force Aid Society, Army Emergency Relief, Navy and Marine Corps Relief Society, and Coast Guard Mutual Aid. So let's meet the leadership of our military aid societies. I'm Lieutenant General Retired John Hopper. I represent the Air Force Aid Society. I'm Rear Admiral Retired Kerry Thomas. I am the CEO of Coast Guard Mutual Assistance. Lieutenant General Retired Ray Mason. I'm the Director of Army Emergency Relief. Lieutenant General Jack Klimp, retired. I'm the President and CEO of Navy Marine Corps Relief Society. So tell us a little bit about each of your core components and what is the makeup and structure of each of your organizations? I think uh, Navy Marine Corps Relief Society is, uh, is a little bit different than the other societies in that we represent not one service, but two. We have about 160 paid employees in about 52 full service offices around the world. The major way that we differ from the other uh, relief societies is that the lion's share of our work is done by some 4,000 volunteers around the world. The Air Force Aid Society is like the others, been around for 70 plus years. Our constituency includes uh, active duty airmen as well as retirees, widows, widowers, the Air National Guard, the Air Force Reserve. Our support is uh, funneled through the Airmen and Family Readiness Center at our 85 bases and including a couple of satellite operations where there's a rather large Air Force contingent that can require support. We actually have another service out there, a new service, the Space Force. They are in the process of standing up. So the Air Force Aid Society will be providing uh, support to the members of the Space Force. They may decide to have their own society or relief agency in the future, but until they work down to that on their due list, uh, the Air Force Aid Society will provide them support. Coast Guard Mutual Assistance has been around since 1924. We began as an organization called the League of Coast Guard Women on the heels of the First World War. So we're coming up on our 100th birthday. We're very small and agile staff, which gives us a lot of agility and flexibility to be able to spin on a dime, to be able to do whatever the Coast Guard men and women and our client base needs. The service is delivered primarily Coast Guard bases, installations all around the country, and a couple of OCONUS locations as well. We have three main buckets, just like the Air Force Aid Society does with disaster and emergency assistance. 
also education support and the family and off-duty support. We are a little different. Our client base is slightly different because we serve active duty reservists, civilian retirees, and our auxiliary volunteers. And so some total about 135,000. Similar to my brothers and sister of the other relief agencies, we're structured very similarly. We've been around 78 years. Our headquarters is located here in the D.C. area. We have over 70 locations around the Army. Almost every Army base has an Army Emergency Relief Office. Those great Americans out there on Freedom's Frontier are the folks that sit down every day with soldiers and their families. In our 78-year history, provided about $2 billion in assistance to over 4 million members of the Army team. Every one of those dollars was donated to us. The folks that are eligible are active duty and their families, retired soldiers and their families, medically retired, survivors, widows and, and children, as well as active guard and reserve are fully eligible, and then also reserve and National Guard when we mobilize them for 30 days. Three major products, we do no interest loans, or a grant, or a combination of those. And then we also do educational scholarships similar to the other relief agencies. We do about $10 million a year in scholarships for spouses and children. We're all needs-based. It's rank agnostic. Doesn't matter what your rank is. There's no upper limit on the amount of dollars. And uh, the most common thing that soldiers come to us for, active and retired, is car repair and uh, deposit on rent and mortgage payments. Every year, we do about $70 million in assistance to about 45,000 members of the Army team. What difficulties do you find with your constituents or the people you want to help? You know, like what hurdles are there in reaching out to servicemen and women and their families within your branches? Our biggest challenge in AER, and I would suspect it's similar with the other relief agencies, is communication, making sure that every member of the Army team knows about us, is aware of us, and knows how to come and get us support. Uh, you would think that that would be pretty obvious, but frankly, in today's social media world where you're bombarded with so much information, it's really hard to laser through that and get to every soldier to know about what we do, where we are, how you get our resources. Stigma of asking for help. That is absolutely an issue I think we all deal with. I, I know for a fact we do in the Army. And people a lot of times are reluctant to come and ask for help for a lot of different reasons. Concerned about what their chain of command is going to say. They may be worried about their security clearance. So we in AER have a program called Direct Access, which allows a soldier of any rank to come to AER without chain of command involvement. Now, there are some caveats and some safeguards inside of that. First thing I always tell soldiers is go to your chain of command. That's why they're there. If you're not comfortable going to your chain of command for whatever reason, come to us. That's why we put direct access in place. But we have some checks and balances in there. Uh, I think you said it very well. The obligation to educate it is absolutely paramount. Our constituency changes every year. And uh, if you're making the assumption that we're the Air Force Aid Society, we're Army Emergency Relief, everybody knows about us. That's not true. So General Mason's absolutely right there. Access is our perhaps greatest concern as well. Toughest job is getting the airmen to come into the Airmen and Family Readiness Center to get some support. So we combat that. Like the direct access, we don't require the first sergeant or the commander to be involved. On the other hand, we'll tell an airman that the strongest case that you can make is having the support of your command, your leadership team. Uh, just as General Mason said, if it's a broken car, it's the unplanned expense, 
it's the keeping up with the Joneses, perhaps that gets you a little bit out of whack. Uh, so we have a similar program we call the Falcon Loan. It's a no interest loan. We pay it off in about a year. It seems to, to really attack problems before they grow too big. Some people believe that you have to give to get assistance, which is not the case. People are uh, concerned about their security clearance. It's important that I reassure anyone who needs Coast Guard Mutual Assistance help. It's not going to affect your security clearance. We do not report to credit agencies. So by taking a uh, 0% loan from us, it's not going to affect your credit score either. And we mirror the other uh, Air Force and Army's quick loan programs as well as uh, how to get assistance and what you need to do. I would echo uh, my uh, two brothers and sister there that communications is a, is a major hurdle for us in just trying to inform and educate Marines and sailors out there that we exist and we're there to help. In addition to that, working with the chain of command to teach them, I guess, or inform them that they should look at us as a, a leadership tool that a Marine or sailor who is not focused on some financial difficulty can focus on his, his or her job. Uh, in doing so, improves the readiness of the organization. I know there is a stigma about asking for help. Warriors don't ask for help. It's often seen as a sign of weakness by the individual if he or she does. We also have a quick assistance loan. A Marine or sailor can enter our office and walk out literally 30 minutes later with a check for $500. Like the other societies, if it becomes habit-forming, if he or she has more than five of those visits in a career, then we work with them to improve their uh, financial practices. When a Marine or a sailor asks for a loan or requests a loan or needs a loan more than that $500, then we require them to go through a budgeting process and a degree of financial counseling before the uh, loan is granted. We guarantee our Marines and sailors confidentiality. So there is no requirement for them to go to their chain of command before they come to see us. If, however, in the conversation and in the discussion and in the counseling, it becomes apparent that perhaps the chain of command should be involved and could help in additional ways, then we will talk to the sailor and the Marine about how about we talk to the chain of command, we get some additional help for you. So I think that's probably the major difference. We guarantee confidentiality right from the beginning, and then we'll work with the Marine or Sailor regarding his or her contact or our contact with the chain of command. How do major disasters impact the assistance you give to servicemen and women and their families? Often assistance that's required at some point after the disaster, if you will, that isn't apparent immediately. Lost homes, lost furniture, lost damaged cars. And a good example there is we had a young man whose unit evacuated Camp Lejeune last year. When he came back, he and when the unit came back, he could not find his car. So our folks went kind of above and beyond, located his car. It had been moved along with other blowdown from the storm to a, a disposal area. We found the car there for him, got his car back aboard the base. It had sustained significant damage. So we found a car dealership or repair shop, took his car there, got his car there, got it repaired, and then got it back aboard the base. And then sure enough, his unit was scheduled to deploy and he had no place to put the car. So we assisted him with finding uh, a place to put that car while his unit was was deployed operationally. So it's just a, an example of the fact that our 
folks out there, those volunteers and those 160 employees, more often than not, go uh, well above and beyond what the basic mission statement is. One significant disaster that occurred last year that did not occur to my other aid societies was a lapse in the Department of Homeland Security appropriations, which meant that the men and women of the Coast Guard uh, active duty were not being paid. And so it took $180 million to pay the Coast Guard workforce. I did not have $180 million in our bank account. And it created a significant challenge for us. And uh, so we went through a process by which we tiered all of our mission programs that we provided and put them into dire and urgent, immediate, and then non-time sensitive. And then we deferred all of our non-time sensitive ones or referred them to my fellow aid societies to allow them to get the assistance that they needed because we have a pact between us that you can walk aboard a base Coast Guardsmen can walk aboard a base at an Army installation and get assistance. Likewise, a Navy Petty Officer can walk into a Coast Guard facility and get help as well. And so the other aid societies worked very closely to help us through that time. And through a very generous $15 million gift that we got from USAA and a uh, line of credit that we had with our own uh, portfolio, we were prepared to do about $30 million in, in assistance. And it was a very uncertain time for us because we didn't know how long that the assistance was going to uh, occur for, that government shutdown was going to occur. In the end, we did $8.4 million in in relief in 35 days, which is when you compare to 2016, we did $4 million in assistance for the entire year. And uh, so it really goes to our agility and our ability to respond in time of crisis, which is a basic underpinning of what the United States Coast Guard does in in their mission sets and how we as a relief society are able to help the men and women of the Coast Guard. And I'll just go to Admiral Thomas, the last example. Uh, We, in fact, used to use a government shutdown as a stress test in determining the size of our cash reserve and and how well we could respond. And, And interestingly, we had one of our board members that said, look, we've had these before. We have never failed to pay the military. You guys need to find another stress test, which we did. Uh, And then along comes the most recent government shutdown. We were not affected uh, on the uh, Army, Navy, Marine Corps, Air Force side, but our colleagues in the United States Coast Guard were severely affected. That idea of testing what we can do and making sure that we have enough liquidity is, is absolutely critical for all of us. For us, the biggest test recently was 2018 when a hurricane destroyed Panama City, Florida, and Tennell Air Force Base. And so in the space of about uh, two and a half to three weeks, we spent about six and a half million dollars to uh, to help airmen, guardsmen, reservists, retirees, widows and widowers in the Panama City, Tennell Air Force Base area, which was a stretch for us. But fortunately, we were able to do that within our current reserves. But we take that lesson learned by the Coast Guard very seriously. and. Uh, in planning for the future. Similar to the other relief agencies, uh, natural disasters were all hands on deck. Uh, probably the largest one we've done in the past several years uh, in terms of assistance was Hurricane Maria, which came through the Caribbean, hit Puerto Rico pretty significantly, as well as the American Virgin Islands, uh, St. Croix, St. Thomas. And we did almost $4 million in assistance. All of that ended up being grants. Uh, and the majority of that was for reserve and National Guard soldiers, because that's a pretty heavy uh, reserve National Guard area of the United States. 
uh, that were not on active duty, we we waived that 30-day requirement. And we did all that support through electronic funds transfers digitally online, because obviously the infrastructure, physical brick and mortar facilities were not available. So uh, that kind of gave us a lot of lessons learned that we're now applying, obviously, in the current national emergency, global emergency for COVID-19. We went into a work from home process where we did remote work for AER headquarters. Uh, Most of our offices of the 70 plus offices, probably 75% of those immediately also went to remote work or digital work. So we put in place a online application process through our website uh, where soldiers can go in, submit the application for assistance for all the different categories. Uh, It then goes to the AEROs or to the headquarters here, we then give them a site to upload secure documents, whether it's their budget or the bill or whatever. And then once it's approved, usually within 12 to 24 hours, we will electronically fund transfer dollars directly to from our bank account to the soldier's bank account. We've done about uh, 250 cases, soldiers and their families to the tune of about uh, $250,000. Be honest with you, I thought that demand would be more significant. But what I think what's occurred is everybody kind of hunkered down real quick, stayed at home, didn't spend a lot of money. They're not out traveling, not going to restaurants. So initially the financial issues weren't there. But now that bills are coming due, and we're prepared uh, to deal with that digitally. And uh, we're pretty pleased with that. The major difference between this crisis and many of the others that we have faced is that the others tend to be instantaneous and kind of narrowly focused, maybe regionally, you know, an earthquake will hit and maybe affect one or two bases. This one has played out gradually and is rather than regionally or statewide, it's played out worldwide. Like General Mason said, we are working remotely and have been for about eight weeks now from our headquarters. Our guidance to the various FSOs was to ensure the safety of themselves, their families, uh, their volunteers, and their clients and to work closely with the uh, local installation commander on when to and how to continue operations or continue assistance that included basic living expenses, food, rent, mortgage, utilities, to include childcare due to stay-at-home orders, quarantine, or interruption of income. We helped with household setups when a family could not join a service member due to travel restrictions or the result of stop movement orders. We assisted with travel interruption costs, with expenses that resulted from permanent change of orders, pauses in that. We provided some assistance for college students and their travel due to unexpected college closures. Medical expenses not covered by TRICARE, uh, mental health support, equipment, co-pays for doctors, prescriptions, tests, medical supplies or hospital visits, and sadly, in a number of cases for funeral costs. What has the biggest impact been from COVID-19? Probably the biggest impact has been on fundraising. Our active duty fund drive, which is our largest revenue stream, uh, actually launched on one March shortly before the bases went into lockdown. That result has been kind of devastating to our buy our own for our own campaign. The retiree fund drive, which should have launched at about the same time, was awaiting uh, the signing of a letter by the Secretary of the Navy. That letter was finalized on 7 April, the same day that the previous uh, acting Secretary of Navy resigned. Uh, So that campaign has been on hold until the new acting uh, Secretary signed the letter, and that campaign will get underway here shortly. 
So I think in the long term, the long range, the major issue that we're going to have to deal with is that impact on fundraising because it will affect not just this year, but will carry over into next year as well. We are clearly more prepared financially. We're also prepared, you know, programmatically. And so we quickly identified some new programs from uh, additional education grants for kids now being educated at home, uh, elder care, school meals, you know, families that are eligible for free breakfast and lunch. Now suddenly they are at home. And so those families are experiencing expenses more than they may have previously uh, planned for. So we put in place a whole bunch of new programs. Uh, We've done almost $500,000 in assistance for just under uh, 500 families. And so I would tell you that the curve that the other aid societies have are experiencing is what we experienced during the government shutdown. The reason that we've done so much more assistance is because now, because of the government shutdown, uh, more people know about us, more people have heard of us, more people rely on our ability to be able to respond financially. And uh, we are much stronger this year than we were last year financially because of the gift that we got Plus, you know, regular donors came to the table during the government shutdown as well. It gave us more flexibility to be able to respond, and uh, our clients have have accordingly. They know about us, and we're a victim of our own success. The Air Force Assistance Fund drive, that is, uh, like uh, General Clint mentioned, that is our single biggest fundraiser every year. Uh, The mottos are even very similar, Airmen Helping Airmen, and uh, our kickoff date was the 2nd of March. Uh, we found out over the years that those campaigns do best when key workers on the base are able to make direct contact with airmen and uh, tell them about uh, how we help, uh, along with three other charities for us, uh, how we help and, uh, and the need for continuing, continuing need to raise money. We had just about immediately suspended the face-to-face contact. Fortunately, we had been in the process of robusting the online giving for that Air Force Assistance Fund campaign. This probably was the best prepared we were to do that, and that has been suspended. Hopefully, uh, we'll be able to pick up and do a short period uh, of uh, campaigning in midsummer is what we hope to do. But the bottom line impact is a severe, severe uh, loss of, of the amount of funds that we normally raise. Uh, for us, uh, COVID-19 reflects the same things that you've been hearing from my colleagues in the other relief societies. And, and you should know, and those listening should know, that this podcast actually is no different than the collaboration, frankly, that we normally have, not just at the CEO, director level, but uh, up and down our various uh, staffs. The part that I miss is that usually we get together uh, once a quarter, face-to-face, we try to talk the uh, junior uh, CEO into buying us all lunch and uh, get a chance to uh, to trade some of these ideas. The COVID-19, it, it is a unique sort of disaster. It is a pandemic combined with a, a worldwide recession, and uh, it's combined with a, uh, with a dramatic upswell in support from the government to the populace. And so we are riding some of that now, we believe. It, eventually, we will get to the point where Many, many things will continue to come due, and the recovery will probably not keep pace with that. My biggest concern is getting out of sync with families that have working spouses and school-aged children that are still out of school, and trying to get that balance back, uh, I think, is going to be very difficult.
I know the one team, one fight mentality lives amongst all of you, but what do you value most about your team members or your brothers and sisters in arms in the aid societies? Because we are the smallest service, the Coast Guard tends to rely in the joint environment. And having worked alongside Marines and sailors and and, uh, soldiers and airmen, I can tell you that everyone respects one another and everyone um, listens to one another because we all have something to contribute to the joint fight of the environment that we're working in. I have found it in the two years that I've been here. I've, I've learned from my counterparts and they have listened, you know, to us when we've had events occur. And, uh, you know, that's the beauty of a joint environment. Two things that I appreciate the most uh, as kind of the junior person on station here amongst the the four of us is the willingness of my counterparts out there to share. Everybody has been uh, has been very um, willing to share what they're doing and how they're doing it. And the other thing I would say is uh, what I would call mentorship and education. The mentorship and the assistance provided to me by my fellow uh, uh, CEOs out there has been invaluable. My colleagues have said it very well. If folks ever wondered about the ability of the joint team, we can tell them from the insider's perspective just how well it works. And like General Clip said, the exchange of ideas and thoughts and initiatives puts the lie to the old idea, old concept that there's no good idea that's not worth stealing uh, when they're, in fact, traded freely among your, among your colleagues. So I value their inputs and do not be fooled by the length of time they've been on the job. They bring, uh, they really bring the full load. I appreciate it. You know, we always have that saying, one team, one fight. You know, all of our relationship between the four relief agencies is, we know any military member can go into any other relief agency and be supported. We are always supporting each other's members as we should. Um, The other really important partner, the American Red Cross, they have three call centers around the United States. And so soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, Coast Guardmen, Airmen, everybody can always call them. You know, if some military member out there alone and unafraid, they can pick up the phone. I even had the opportunity to sit down with a representative from American Red Cross Service to the Armed Forces Hero Care Center. Why did we include them in the conversation? Well, they are one of the many common denominators between all the relief societies. Also, Whenever an emergency need to reach a service member anywhere in the world arises, they are at the ready to assist 24-7, 365, and work with the aid societies to get our servicemen and women and their families the help they need. My name is Joe Sadler, Jr., and I'm a supervisor with the American Red Cross Service to the Armed Forces Hero Care Center. You know, we are a call center. We have region-level people who are out on the military installations, both CONUS and then also OCONUS. Our specific role is to field calls and work in tandem with the entire Red Cross team to uh, provide the emergency communication message, which may allow that member, member's command, to make an informed decision based upon leave. In turn, could result in the member needing additional services, which could also be travel, 
the member may need some financial assistance, and that's what we also assist the aid societies on an after-hours basis. And then we also, we serve the veteran community as well. We start what's called a critical community services case in which we know that point of contact with the veteran is not once and done. It's over a period of time. All of our information is available on our website. And in addition to that, if there's ever any need for our service, there's a toll-free number. That's the 877-272-7337. So being the resource we are and the ability to work with all branches of the military and the respective aid societies, we're able to ensure service members and their families get the help they need. To close out the episode, I'd like to ask our Military Relief Society's leadership, if you could send a message to the entire service force, what would you say to that service member to go ahead and step forward and get help? Service is what they signed up to do, and that there are other folks uh, out there surrounding them intending to facilitate and support their ability to serve the country. So let us help you be a better soldier, sailor, airman, marine, coast guardsman to serve America. Life happens. Unexpected things occur, and asking for help, sign of strength. If a military member is distracted by something in their life, they're not focused on their individual training. They're probably not focused on their unit mission. And if we send them into combat, they are a danger to themselves and their buddies on their left and right. We want these military members to go into combat, laser focused on their mission, complete that mission, come home safely to their loved ones. And if we at the relief agencies can help reduce that distraction, that's mission success. When you have a need, when you're in trouble, when you have difficulties, please consider us as your first choice, not your last resort. Motto of the Coast Guard is Semper Paratus, which means always ready. And dollars that are donated to our aid societies are equally important to us so that, so that we can be Semper Paratus uh, for the men and women of the Coast Guard clients that we serve. Well, I, I would close by, uh, first of all, thanking my colleagues for, uh, for giving us this time and uh, joining so elegantly in, in explaining what we do and why we're dedicated to helping the service members that, uh, that are part of our respective services. It, uh, it sometimes is not an easy task. And when you're anticipating uh, a large demand, you find yourself waiting uh, and waiting and waiting, and then the wave hits, and then it's all hands on deck to borrow praise. We are well-prepared, well-positioned, and we look forward to this challenge. I'd like to say thank you to Joe Sattler from the American Red Cross Service to Armed Forces Hero Care Center for his insight and how the Red Cross helps our servicemen and women in the time of need. That's it for us here at Airmen Helping Airmen on this episode. Don't forget to click, subscribe, like, share this podcast. We want everybody to know as much information about the military aid societies, the American Red Cross, all the things that they're doing for our servicemen and women and their families, both home and abroad. And as a reminder, you can find us on all major podcast platforms. Go check out airforceaidsociety.org, click donate and help out. And remember, none of this is possible without you. See you next time.